Hello, my name is Julia Streets and welcome to Diversity Podcast, talking about equality, inclusion and diversity in financial services. On the podcast, we seek to shine a light on positive progress, call out areas requiring further focus and offer lots of ideas to help drive change. And today I am joined by Rosemary Fraser and Louise Newby. Rosemary Fraser is a disability equality and inclusion consultant. She's worked in campaigning, training and public policy for more than 25 years. Rosemary worked with a wide range of organisations, including Airbus and BBC, and as an independent consultant has focused on employment, education and changing attitudes towards disability. And in 2019, she was listed in Shore Trust Power List of most influential disabled people. Rosemary has sat on the board of Campaign Bootcamp, the Global Disability Innovation Hub and Disrupt Disability, and has held public policy roles at MenCap, Sense and Scope. So Rosemary, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's really great to take part in a podcast like this. Louise Newby is a director of Three Eggs, a learning consultancy. Louise started her career at a neuroscience research centre investigating brain markers for depression. She then moved on to GlaxoSmithKline, where, among many roles, managed the global launch of novel HIV therapies. She then moved into education, which included a tenure as a head of science at a secondary school and also lecturing trainee teachers at the University of Cambridge Faculty of Education. It was there that she also participated in European research projects exploring how to improve student learning. And today, Louise works with several individuals who suffered poor workplace mental health, and this has led her to set up her business, 3X. So Louise, welcome to the show. Thanks, Julia, it's great to be here. So I've been really looking forward to this discussion. And Rosemary, let's come to you first of all. I'm really keen to hear what you're focused on for the remainder of this year. Well, it's actually quite an exciting project that I'm working on with someone that I met through sort of social media who's been interested in the same things. And we are developing training modules for employers who want to know how they can recruit disabled staff better, how they can retain disabled staff, and just how they can kind of make the whole kind of employment process much easier than it is. Our our challenge is that normally we would do these training sessions face to face but of course with COVID we've had to kind of try to find a way of doing them online and and have the same sort of impact and one of the things I think about disability certainly as a wheelchair user it helps if you're in the room it really does make a difference because you can well it, it just you can see it and can understand it better I think if you can sort of uh, so it's, it's quite difficult sometimes to talk about disability in the conceptual way but uh, we'll get there. We'll get there. And it feels like this is a conversation of the moment, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, dynamics are shifting. People are thinking about their return to work policies. And we're going to get into some of that for sure in this episode about what organisations must be very mindful of and uh, and, and who, who is physically in the room in these digitally remote times, which is really interesting. Uh, Louise, can I ask you the same question? Uh, we're, we're heading into the last quarter of the year. What are you particularly focused on? Well, what you just said actually links to the main thing we're doing at the moment, which is helping organisations with their return to work strategies, um, re-onboarding staff. The world's changed so much, hasn't it, from the place we were in a year ago. And so we're really helping organisations to 
get their members of staff back into the office in as positive a way as possible, but also recognises the challenge of adapting to new ways of working, which many of us wouldn't have considered possible a year ago. The other thing that we're busy doing is rolling out our proactive employee assistance programme or our PEEP, um, which we're really excited about it. It's something that provides organisations with a holistic range of strategies that support everybody within the organisation. We don't just provide a scruffy poster on the back of a toilet door. Um, It's (laughs) there as kind of an (laughs) end-to-end package of measures that can support everyone at every stage of their career life cycle. And that's all supported by a clinical psychologist. And and it is very interesting because I'm reading some fascinating articles at the moment about, particularly when it comes to mental health, is how people's anxiety levels have changed. And we talk about visible disability and we talk about invisible disability. And so, of course, it must all be completely inclusive. So really keen to hear hear more about that for sure. Well, let's pick up on that question about the return to work. And some organisations are thinking about how they bring their employees back into the workplace. And Rosemary, I'm really keen to hear from you uh, because we like the podcast to be very practical, very focused in terms of ideas that listeners can take forward. Are there any practical or even policy adjustments that should be made for people with disability as well? Well, I've been having some really interesting conversations with some of my disabled friends and colleagues about this whole period. And we think that disabled people have probably coped better with lockdown and kind of being away from things because quite often those barriers are there all of the time for us. So that kind of FOMO, fear of missing out, well, sad to say, we generally are not fully included anyway. So, you know, weirdly, I I think many disabled people working from home is quite a usual thing because it, it, you know, their journey to work may be too difficult. So they're working maybe part of the week from home anyway and used to that. My my concern is, though, that when we do return to work, that we stop thinking about those access issues that actually really matter and that we don't kind of as default position say, oh, well, it's going to be too difficult for you. You know, we can't really make those changes now, what with COVID and social distancing. So that's something that we're that we're thinking about Um, in in the training that I talked about. That's something we're going to try to include. But um, I mean, I, I have always kind of done a, done a sort of worked half the week from home, worked half the week in the office, and that's worked well for me. And, and I guess there is a risk of assumption, isn't there? People will make uh, assumptions about, for example, and this is probably isn't true, but I'll, I'll put it out for size, is, you know, uh, that those with disabilities might naturally therefore have to shield and therefore would not want to come into a workspace necessarily. And, and of course, assumption is the is the enemy of, many things. Uh, your thoughts on that? Absolutely. There seems to have happened over the course of this period, the term vulnerable has been used to describe all disabled people. Now, if I'm a 20-year-old blind person, I'm no more vulnerable to COVID than anybody else, but we are seeing that term used. And I would say the same, I'm, I'm, I'm not no more vulnerable, I'd have no underlying health conditions. However, some disabled people do, and I think this is the challenge And I would argue the beauty about the disability community is that the diversity there. But I also think it does mean that there are challenges and kind of understanding. You touched on earlier about, you know, invisible conditions. Most disabled people are not physically disabled. Most disabled people, you will not know when you meet them that they have some kind of condition. 
but we make assumptions and and I always say that as a wheelchair user I'm really fortunate because when I meet someone I don't have to explain I don't have to out myself as it were and I've I've had supported employees uh, in my teams over the years where you know they've had to talk about something quite difficult in terms of their access needs and maybe they're newly disabled and they don't feel very confident or indeed very knowledgeable about you know what what they need and I think that's a big learning that I've had I've always been disabled and so I've never experienced that kind of sense of loss or understanding what it's like to kind of transform into a new way of living when I've become disabled as, as most disabled people do actually they acquire the, their disability later in life and I also think that's the challenge there for employers is to kind of try to get their heads around but not get terrified of that diversity. And it is a, a, it's a dangerous leap, I, I believe, to go from disability to mental health uh, without recognising that they are two very separate things with some overlap uh, in, in the middle. And Louise, I, I know you're, you've been working with individuals who are really experiencing challenges with mental health, particularly during during lockdown and, and also uh, in, in other circumstances as well. I mean, again, sort of in the context of coming back into workplaces and uh, after you know, months of, of working at home, I'd love to hear your thoughts on practices and policies that need to be put into place and, and, and are you seeing some best practice that you can recommend to the listeners? Yeah, definitely. And I think as ever, there is a huge difference between what some organisations are doing and what others aren't doing. I think probably the most straightforward thing that everybody can do, and it's it's not going to be difficult for them, is to communicate. And communication has been key throughout this whole situation that we've been in since March. There is a potential, though, for people to be overloaded by communication messages. So I'd say keep the messaging really focused. And at this time, as we begin to think about the future, that's something that's really worrying people. And I think that now is the time to start holding honest conversations with your teams about the situation at work, um, because many people will be worried about their jobs. And if there is a silence about that, then that starts to create anxiety within people. So give regular updates on the business as information becomes available to you and provide everybody with the opportunity to ask questions because if people feel that they have a chance to say what they're concerned about then that will help to reduce their anxiety. So communication remains really really important. There's also a need to recognise different levels of anxiety amongst different members of the team. So some people won't be worried at all about coming back into the office. They'll just be seeing it as as an exciting opportunity to get back to some sort of normality. But others are going to be very anxious about returning. And it's really important that you don't assume that everybody feels the same as everybody else or the same as you do. And in that respect, it's important to make sure that you let everybody in the office know what the office will look like when they come back and what rooms will be unavailable. Um, how many days they should be in for and make sure that that messaging is followed through by everybody at every level because if you're a junior member of staff and a more senior member of the team invites you to a meeting in a small meeting room that you have been told is off limits what do you do so it's really important the leaders lead by example we've seen government guidance changing frequently and it's (laughs) probably an understatement (laughs) and it's important that you review what you're doing in your office regularly As people adapt, things will need to change. And it's important that what you set out at the beginning isn't set in stone. And one of the really big things that we really emphasise to organisations that we work with is to collect data. 
I think invisible disabilities are often invisible because workplace practices are designed not to look for them. And I think a lot of the reason behind that is because people are scared of opening a can of worms. And if they start talking about these disabilities, suddenly everybody in the office will have one. Well, we know from so much data now that there are a huge number of hidden disabilities within the workforce. We're not going to be finding things just because we're looking for them. Those things are there. And if organisations have gathered data to fully understand what those issues are, then they can use that information to help their workforce to cope better. Um, So that might be through doing things like Pulse or always on surveys, um, or you can just do regular feedback sessions just to help understand what the level of employee wellbeing is at the moment and allow you to then do deeper dives into what you can do to help your workforce in the future. Another really important thing is going to be onboarding of new recruits. We're thinking particularly about new graduates who have had a very different end to their degree to previous cohorts and especially those new graduates perhaps moving to the city for the first time who don't have that social support network which is so important when you're working in a high pressure environment. We know that loneliness is a huge trigger for mental health issues so managers need to really be thinking about how they're going to onboard their new starters bearing in mind the experience that these new starters are having compared to other people. So um, think about a special programme where you're going to provide lots of face-to-face contact with those new recruits, whether that's virtually or or practically and and in person. And then one of the final things that we're thinking about is continuous development of mental health practices. So we're very aware for some organisations, mental health is very much a tick box exercise and there are lots of tokenistic gestures. And we would say that you need to have this as it's just intrinsic it's part of your culture it's something you do all of the time and it's a fundamental part of why your organization is so successful and you recognize that that's why your organization is successful because you do care about the minds in your business and how people are working and that your business's future success depends upon the well-being of your team that's fantastic. There's some really, really practical insights there so that, that listeners can can take on board. Uh, so thank you very much for that, for both of you. It's, it's enormously helpful. Uh, Rosemary, I know that you've been, you know, all your work with disabled people led you to research and document experiences in other industries, but also in financial services. I, I'm really keen to hear, thinking about the world of, of financial services, how well do people with disabilities fare? What can be done differently or better? You know, any initiatives, networks, anything you'd recommend that the, this industry should really focus on? Well, I've been having chats with some disabled friends and colleagues of mine who work in the financial sector. And one of the things that keeps coming out, and they all work in very different areas, is the willingness to adapt in that sector and to make reasonable adjustments that they didn't find in other sectors they worked in. And over the years, I've been kind of thinking about why this is. And of course, fintech has helped an awful lot. And, you know, it's been really good. But also, I think what helps is the attitude. Attitude is everything when it comes to creating a good environment, a good, diverse work environment. And because the financial industry itself has experienced so much change just over, well, I think even over the past 20 years uh, with chip and pin, with, you know, our less use of cash and, and just the way, you know, the, the way things are done. I think then adapting the workplace for the needs of a disabled employee is not that big a deal. 
I think it's different in more traditional industries where 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 the work hasn't changed or the way of work hasn't changed to kind of maybe think, well, how can we do things differently? And I, I just hear, you know, such 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 really positive stories from people who work in, in the financial sector that I sadly I don't hear from other sectors. There's more of a, and again, it's related to the work that's that, that's being carried out, more of risk taking. Let's try this and see what happens rather than, oh, that's going to be expensive or, oh, we've not done that before. We're terrible, I think, in this country. Of, oh, we've not done that before. I'm not sure that will work. Um, I've lived in the States where I experienced a completely different attitude to to that, where they, they were more willing to try new things. And again, it's it's as much about a culture as as the you know the very kind of practical things of can this be done? But it's even wanting to kind of step back and think before we look at can this be done? Do we want to do this? And I think if you start off the point, yes, we want to create a more diverse workforce, then well, how do we do that? From what I've seen over the years uh, is it has to come from the top. This nonsense about, oh, well, culture change, you know, it has to come up from the bottom. No, in my experience, if the chief executive says something's going to happen in a, in a place of work, it happens. And diversity is normally something that sits with HR. And of course, HR has a really important role to play in that. But I also think diversity has to be part of what the chief executive thinks about every day, what the senior directors think of every day. It should be linked to their bonuses. It should be linked to their their KPIs. And each director should have a KPI that's linked to diversity. I think that's where it works because I think it's unfair to expect, you know, sort of uh, employees at a lower level to really push that agenda. Because, you know, I've, I've been in workplaces where I have felt absolutely comfortable I've also been in ones where I felt nobody wants me here and it's only whenever I've had the support of someone senior where that sort of journey has been so much easier so yeah I would I would say that's probably something that I that that certainly I would focus on is like who is responsible for ensuring a workplace is diverse and and that that falls within the, the heading of leadership uh, and when we think about how learning and development programs within organisations are there to support leaders and enlighten the leadership in challenging times. And exactly as you say, Rosemary, you know, it's an industry that's constantly changing. And it's wonderful to hear you talk about, you know, the, the role of fintech and that we're, we're changing the way that, that financial services work. So this should absolutely be sort of intrinsic to that as well. Uh, but Louise, I know you're, you're thinking about leadership. So I'd love to hear from you as well in terms of are there some very specific leadership developments that organizations can really think about which is then going to create a positive workplace to support individuals you know whether it's mental health conditions and also uh, physical disability or visible and invisible disability as well yeah love your thoughts on what what must leaders do and how organizations must focus upon leadership it's great to hear Rosemary talking about top down because that's something that we go on about a lot and I think it's quite unfashionable to talk about top down um, for certain things but actually in the case of mental health and in the case of hidden disabilities if it isn't top down it's not going to make a difference and it is going to be as I was saying before tokenistic um, it's it's just not going to become an embedded part of that organization's culture so what we 
believe leaders need to do is make mental well-being just part of everyday life at work. It, it's not um, something that needs to be hidden away and, and hush-hushed and pushed under the carpet. It should be an agenda item on team meetings. You know, the, the team leader should be saying, how's everyone feeling? And giving everybody an opportunity to talk about how they're feeling and what they're struggling with and, and sharing their experience with others. The more that people do that, the more people hear others talking about it, the more confident they will be to do the same. And leaders need to show that they support the training of individuals um, to better understand how to spot signs and symptoms of mental ill health. It's no good just sending Joe off on a course and nobody in the leadership team supporting Joe in doing that training and asking Joe when um, he or she gets back how they've got on. They also need to make sure that the HR policies and procedures reflect mental well-being and that will help to embed mental well-being across the organisation as a whole. And also including mental well-being in annual appraisals so that that kind of links to the KPI aspect that Rosemary was talking about it just needs to become part of what organizations do and also demonstrating how much they care about mental well-being by not sending emails out at 10 o'clock on a Friday night you know being mindful of the timing of key communications and things like that but probably most important of all is that senior leaders share their own experiences of mental ill health. So how they cope with stress, for example, so that rather than being a sign of weakness, it's something that's seen as a sign of strength, a sign of resilience that, yes, work is tough sometimes and we all feel a pressure from work. And this is how I deal with it. And I'm prepared to talk to you about it because it's not a weakness. It's not something that should be hidden away. But what's really important now is also recognising the pressure on senior leaders who are working in a completely different environment to the one that they've ever worked in before and the pressure that that can put on them. And, and we do need to support our senior leaders. I think there's perhaps sometimes more focus on people lower down within an organisation, but who's there for the senior leaders to turn to and what support can they be offered confidentially if they require it because they don't want their team to think they're struggling because of the impact that could have on their team. So an approach that we found really useful um, are our reflective practice groups. So we provide a safe space where a senior group of executives can talk about the pressures of work and how it impacts their lives. And they're run, uh, facilitated by a clinical psychologist, so they don't become a, a whinge fest with everybody moaning about everything that's terrible. <laughs> um, it's just a, a unique opportunity for people to talk about how they're feeling, what they're finding stressful at the moment, how they're coping with it, sharing experience with, with others. The outcomes of those groups aren't shared with anyone uh, for the management team. They're confidential and kept within the full walls of, of the meeting where that's happening or the, or the four video screens if it's being done virtually and it's just a demonstration by the organization of their commitment to people at all levels and the negative impact that work can have on people's lives but actually that's okay and this is how other people have coped with it and we can all work together to to feel more positive again if we're struggling yeah and I, and I love the point you made about sort of baking mental health into scorecards and KPIs, because now, I mean, constantly, we talk about healthy, high-performing teams. This is a really important part of that as well. Something you were talking about earlier, which I'd really love to come to Rosemary on, which is um, the question of recruitment. 
And Louise, you were talking about onboarding new staff as well. Rosemary, I'd love to get your thoughts on when we're thinking about the recruitment of employees. I mean, what advice do you give organisations to to make sure that the recruitment process is fully inclusive and also to onboard employees with visible and invisible disabilities as well? I think look at how you recruit, look at the whole process. So I recently recruited uh five disabled people to a board and each of those people were disabled and they were disabled in very, very different ways. And the usual application process that we have, isn't it? It's the dull application form. It's the it's the personal statement that we write, which I've always loathed. So what, what we did was some people said they struggled with writing. They, you know, so we did telephone applications. We did one person did like a poetry recital for us about why she wanted the role and what that she, you know what she thought that she could bring to it and it was a real challenge to me because I'm quite I'm quite a square when it comes to kind of doing things and it challenged me as well but what what really makes a big difference is they could see another disabled person on the that that was involved in this that there was empathy there and so I would think you know have someone who is disabled and who's able to talk about, doesn't feel bad about sort of, or feel awkward about talking about their disability. If I can share something which I think is really important that touches on what Louise spoke about earlier. I went as part of a panel to go and talk at a large city law firm about hidden impairments, hidden disability in the workplace. And then there was a Q&A session afterwards. And a person stood up and said, I haven't told anybody about this before, but I just want to let you all know that I'm deaf. She'd worked there for seven years and had not told anyone she was deaf. And she'd relied on lip reading and she'd avoided going out to kind of social situations. And And she didn't want to tell anyone that she was deaf because she thought it would affect her career. And her line manager was, he, he was devastated that he didn't know this and felt that he, you know, what could I have done to find out? And sometimes there's nothing you can do to find out because if someone doesn't want to divulge that, that's their right. The only thing that you can do is to keep putting across very clear messaging about, you know, here's what support you can get. We want to make sure that we have a diverse workforce. If you want to go and talk with people, I think informal networks are really good with that. You know, it's easier for me to kind of, people can see or they think they know when they see me what my access needs are. But it's just kind of having that where someone can maybe go to an older disabled person or a disabled person in the workplace that has been there longer and sort of say, look, I'm, I'm, I'm living with this condition. I'm finding it starting to change. I'm not coping as well as I used to be able to do. What, what do I do about this? Rather than going to a non-disabled line manager or a non-disabled person in HR who won't have, and why would they have knowledge of, of impairment and disability? You know, one of the things that I've learned over the years managing teams of disabled and non-disabled people is, my goodness, what I don't know about access and what I don't know, but what I didn't know about um, how to make reasonable adjustments. And it's been... And it's, you know, it's, it, it's been really, really helpful to me. And it's kind of made me think about, okay, well, what I what do I need to do? And 
that that was said about sort of starting every team meeting with, how are we all? Starting a one-to-one supervision with, how are you? How's the family? How's that? You know, rather than, you know, did you do that? Did you finish that report? Did you, you know, because um, people with, with, and I say that as someone who's um, um, had some mental health issues that I've dealt with over the years, you hide it. Of course you hide it because it's something we don't like to talk about. And, and we have to, we have to talk about it. And I would agree with what Louise said as well about, you know, how do we better support our senior management in this? How do I better support my senior managers to understand my disability and my needs better? And these are all really important things. And I think that's a perfect moment where we're going to bring in Cynthia Akinsanyo because she has some research to support today's discussion. Disabled employees working from home during lockdown say they have been more productive and took fewer days off sick than when they were doing their jobs in the office, according to a survey published in August 20 by Unison. The union is now calling on the government to give disabled people a right to work from home if they wish and for employers to face penalties if they don't comply. Disabled employees should have the right under equality laws to reasonable adjustments to reduce the effect of their disability, says Unison. This includes working from home, but Unison has been told by workers that many employers argue that this doesn't count as a reasonable change to their employment arrangements. Figures released by the union based on responses from more than 4,000 disabled workers across the UK, show that half worked from home during the COVID crisis. This is a huge increase on the one in 20 who say they usually do this. Thank you, Cynthia, for that research, uh, which is fascinating. And of course, you could find all our research on diversitypodcast.com. Don't forget that's diversity with a C, not with an S, diversity podcast. And you can find all the episodes on the website and can sign up for early notifications of future recordings. Please do follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn. And Diversity Podcast is available on Bright's Talk and all good podcast channels. And by the way, we'd love a rating because it all helps to promote the show. So as we go into the last few moments of, the, of this episode, I'm really keen to hear your thoughts on a question that I'm asking pretty much everybody at the moment. And that is, we are heading into tough times. It's very clear. As we, and as we navigate what is absolutely going to be an economic downturn, your views would be very welcome on why it's essential that diversity and inclusion must remain high on corporate agendas. It's very easy for it to be sidelined and particularly representing the interests of employees with visible and invisible disabilities and, and mental health. Louise, may I come to you first of all? You know, why must D&I remain high? I think, well, first of all, we should always remember that better psychological well-being is associated with higher levels of productivity among the workforce. Employees in good health, we know, can be up to three times more productive than those in poor health. And there are several studies now that show that good workplace mental health is the key ingredient for effectiveness of high performance and high efficiency work practices that have the most impact on productivity growth. So it kind of goes without saying that if you want to remain successful, despite challenges around you, you need to support the mental well-being of your workforce. Professor Alex Ednams of the London Business School has said that companies that treat their workers better do better. And he's done a significant amount of research looking into that. 
and understanding the impact that treating your workers better can have on company performance. And along those lines, we'd argue that organisations that recognise the contribution that every single employee can make and understand the impact that a positive mental health culture has on everyone will be far better placed to navigate their way through the uncertainties we have ahead of us. Because if you create a positive environment for everybody to work in, that's going to cost far less than failing to do so when you think about the cost of attrition on businesses. So by supporting the team that you've got, that makes much more financial sense than losing people and training up replacements or spreading your staff more thinly. By understanding the needs of everybody within the organisation, you can get the most out of every individual um, and keep productivity levels high. Very compelling reason, if ever I've heard one. And Rosemary, may I turn to you? I'd love, as you wrap up the show, uh, your, your thoughts as well about why diversity inclusion really matters right now. Well, in terms of disability, two things come to me, my mind, when I think of disabled people. Resilience, problem solving. Disabled people constantly show resilience, having to adapt to a change in conditions, problem solving, having to live in a world that doesn't meet your needs and sort of in the workplace, I want, I want a resilient employee and I want someone who knows how to solve problems. That's what any company wants in their workplace. And if you want that, you will find it in so much in, in disabled people because we are going to be going through lots of change going forward and there will be a lot of, res- people will need a lot of resilience. And, and I think really disabled people are champions of that as I, I can think of so many examples where I've seen that in the workplace over the years. I think that's a very inspiring way to end the show. I can't tell you how much I've really enjoyed the conversation, uh, not only because it's it's covered an incredibly important topic right now, but also particularly for your insights, your perspectives, your experience. Louise, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great to have you on the show. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. And Rosemary, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been really great. And as always, to all our listeners at Diversity Podcast, thank you for listening. I've been Julia Streets. Thank you. This episode of Diversity Podcast was produced by me, Kieran Yates, on behalf of Julia Streets Productions. Thanks to Cynthia Akinsania for her insights. You can find out more about the guests on this week's show on our website, diversitypodcast.com. And that's diversity with a C, not an S. Whilst you're there, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all our latest updates. All our episodes are available in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app. If you enjoy Diversity Podcast, remember to share on social media and give us a rating or review. It really helps promote the show to a wider audience. Finally, our Twitter handle is at DiversityPod. Thanks for listening.